from God's word. And hopefully you get the same thing here, all right? So hopefully it's, it's good for you. As I said, it is good to see you. Um, we're going to go into the book of Revelation, as, as Ben mentioned. Um, how do you feel whenever you read from the book of Revelation? <laughs> okay, got a mixture there. Anybody intimidated? Anybody intimidated? Yeah, because honest people putting their hands up. Do you regularly in your life purposefully read from the book of Revelation? Once a year? Well, yeah, Pete, every time you go into it, I, uh, I, I, I'm reading. From, yeah. The book's more correct title is not the book of Revelation. It is the revelation anybody? of Jesus Christ. That title is given to us in the very first verse of chapter 1 of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ because it contains God's plans for the end of human history. Our end is in this book, and they all, every last one of them, revolves around Jesus Christ. It's not about us. It's not about Lucifer. It's not about Antichrist. It's about Jesus Christ. Um, And it can be pretty overwhelming. It really can. And uh, many people who read through the book of Revelation or just read portions of it will express their frustration over what it says and maybe more so over what it means. Like, what does it mean here? Like, what is this all about? It's a vision that we're told, Jesus tells us, will bring blessings to anyone who hears it and obeys its message. Like, right now. What's not confusing about the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ is how Jesus makes crystal clear our calling. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you've placed your faith and trust in Him as your Savior, His debt payment for your sins on the cross, our calling is to be overcomers. It's a big word. We're going to see it over and over again, overcomer. So, question, as we start this study together going through chapters 2 and 3, would you say that you are an overcomer? Jesus personally promises overcomers eternal life. Would you say you're an overcomer? Jesus personally promises and guarantees justice. Jesus guarantees uh, and promises participation by each of us who know him as Savior in his ultimate victory at the end of the book and in experiencing of the very presence of God. Would you say you are an overcomer? But with all this blessing and all this overcoming, what's really important for us to keep in perspective as we frame chapter 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation is that while you and I could be called upon to be in the process of overcoming, even in this country, it could happen, Jesus reveals that while we're in the process of overcoming, the forces of evil will be allowed to conquer God's people for a little while. Physical persecution, even martyrdom. It's in uh, chapter 11, it's in chapter 13, and it was in the very first church generation in the book of Acts. I know that many of us, uh, this can be troubling, right? It, 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 can be a, it, be, it can be troubling to process this truth and to accept it as truth, to accept it as possibly our reality one day, 
and accept this seeming paradox. A lot of things in God's Word are, are paradoxical. Uh, that while you overcome, you may be also die. <laughs> but it, they're both true. Uh, and I know for many of us, in the back of our minds, let's all be honest, because we're in church, okay? So let's all be honest. Um, do you hope you avoid that? Can I, can I get an amen? Yeah, because we're just being honest here. We hope that we will avoid that. But we're also reminded by Jesus Christ that through his death and resurrection, Jesus, this lion and lamb, there's another paradox, has in reality already conquered and triumphed over evil. Right? We know that. And, and, and it comes out in uh, chapter 5 and chapter 17 of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 12, and I'm going to be jumping all over Revelation as we do those chapters 2 and 3, but in Revelation chapter 12, 11, it explains how overcomers conquer. Here's how it goes. And they have conquered him, they've conquered the evil one, by the blood of the Lamb. They have. It's done. It's a done deal. And by the word of their testimony, which backs up the fact that they have put their faith and trust in the blood of the Lamb. For they loved not their lives even unto death. In this present darkness that started when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, in this present darkness, our light that God shines through us of overcoming against all odds is more a state of mind and heart, isn't it? It's a state of mind and heart which we prove daily in our families and in our workplaces and at school. We prove it to be a reality through a state of being. So that state of mind and that state of heart shows itself in a state of being. We are overcomers. And I'm afraid that so often, generally speaking, this, the global church that uh, you can watch on TV as much as you want, sometimes can be more in a state of talk, but not so much in the state of being, the kind of being that Jesus is going to describe to us over the next four weeks. Specifically, we're told that this is what overcoming looks like to reject false teaching, and to know the difference, to reject sexual immorality, oh my, to reject idolatry, spiritual compromise, all of which is rampant in the church of America today. To overcome is to follow the Lamb with one's whole life until the very end of one's life. Would you say you are an overcomer? We'll be reflecting on that over and over again. The seven messages of Jesus to the church are contained in chapters 2 and 3. Um, and that's where we're going to go for the next four to five weeks. I said four weeks, but you never know, right? I still got Mother's Day hanging on there. Maybe we'll hit the last church on Mother's Day, and we'll somehow make an application. Following this, an awesome vision. I know, have you guys read um, John, uh, John? Uh, Revelation chapter 1 lately, I mean, it's, it's really refreshing because you get this amazing vision of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, 
And it's like nothing we've ever seen before. It's in, it's in verses 9 through 16. I recommend you read it at least once a week. And it's an appearance that defies our comprehension. You just, and and here, here, John, the Apostle John, who, who walked and talked with Jesus uh, in the flesh, who saw him for 40 days after his resurrection from the dead, upon seeing this glorious vision of the resurrected Jesus Christ, um, records in verse 17 of chapter 1, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And, and right after that blown away moment, Jesus tells John, it's okay, I want you to write down these, the following seven messages to seven particular congregations who all live in Asia Minor. So the focus of chapter 1 is on revealing Jesus Christ, risen and glorified, uh, Lord over all. He's the king. And then the seven messages that follow up that vision are a continued revealing of Jesus Christ. His words to John, to the church, reveals who he is and what the corresponding actions and lifestyle uh, and daily worship of him is supposed to look like. So that's where we're going to be going. It's, I think it's going to be really exciting because it's, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be a, a kick in the rear end. It's going to be encouraging. It's, it's, it's the, whole, the whole thing. And since every church is challenged over and over again to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, it's likely that each church was to focus on its own specific message while at the same time also hearing what Jesus is saying to the other churches because there's probably a lot of overlap. Uh, you and I today... We get to hear it, we get to take it, and we get to apply all seven. Wow. First, Jesus addresses Ephesus, and that's the only church we're going to do today. Ephesus, that's all we got time for. Um, uh, Ephesus is in Asian Minor, and I see a little map up there to kind of help coordinate you geographically because we're really deficient on that from, in our school education. But, uh, but here we go. Okay, so it's Ephesus. That's where Paul headquartered. Through a lot of the book of Acts, this is where he headquartered for years and spread the gospel message throughout the, the known world of his day. It's where the apostle John ministered before his arrest and exile to the island of Patmos. You can see it off the, the coast there, just off the coast of Turkey. So what does Jesus say? What's he got to say to, to Ephesus? Well, he commands Ephesus, commends Ephesus for contending for the pure faith. It's a huge theme that we all went through uh, last year when we went through the book of Jude together. Contend for the faith. But then he challenges them to do that contending out of love. Yeah, you can take that off. There we go. Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, this is chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 1, if you've got your Bibles. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, that's Jesus, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, all symbolic of Jesus is in charge of his church. It's his body. It's his flesh on earth. It's, and by the way, this is like the same Old Testament phrase that you come over like over 200 times, thus saith the Lord, right, in the Old Testament. So let's never forget while we're reading this that Jesus is God. Capital G, O-D. And we are his body. We're the church, we're the assembly. 
gathered together to serve him, to worship him. It's all about Jesus. We're a people bought by his blood. So when God talks, we should listen, right? So let's listen. Verse 2. I know, he's talking to Ephesus now, I know your works. I know what you do. Your toil and your patient endurance. You see, what we do is important. Some Christians don't think it is. I'm, I'm flabbergasted sometimes, you know, uh, as I talk with, with, with believers. What we do is important, and our hard work of contending for the truth, which is daily, and it's exhausting, in our families, in our friendships, it doesn't go unnoticed by God. You see, we, we live in a pluralistic culture, right? There's there are many truths. You just pick one, and it's just fine, and we're all good with that, apparently. And we live in a secular culture. Um, God does not exist, but if God does exist, He sure doesn't care, and He's probably unknowable anyway. So, And it's becoming, what's, what's surprising here, if you look at culture today that you and I live in, it's becoming increasingly similar to the one that John lived in in first century Ephesus. It's really, really like identical. It's like society isn't getting better. It's actually going backward. <laughs> uh, there's nothing new under the sun. And there are many, many more religious voices in our day claiming to possess absolute truth. Have you been listening to them? Religious voices demanding uncritical allegiance to their spin on the truth. And if you don't fall in line with their form of truth, you're labeled unlightened and you're on the outs. And there are more and more political voices claiming to possess absolute certainty. This is what we need to do. This will fix everything. Even citing Scripture and, or even God's name, tacking it on to the end, let's pray. Even recruiting Christian celebrities. There's a whole nother talk. <laughs> Christian celebrities to back them up. And demanding, just like the religious voices, demanding uncritical allegiance to their form of truth or you're, you're out. You're not, you're not on the same page we are, so we're moving on. And Jesus here is commending them for the way they examine the belief system of everyone. Everyone. And Jesus tells us that those belief systems must be examined along with their practices. Because it's what people do and how they live which tells you whether what they're saying carries any weight, really. Bad theology ultimately hurts people. And Jesus directly commends this Ephesian church for their doctrinal purity and the hard work that's required to preserve it. It's really, really hard to do. Have you found that? To stay pure? But what you believe God's Word says? It's really hard work to do day in and day out, and you'll probably tick off a lot of people. You just will. I know if you're the kind of person who just want to please everyone, um, you're going to suffer. You really are. It's going to be really hard. What are we... No, let's, let's make it more personal. What are you known for in the community? 
on your street, at your workplace, in your school, in your church community? What are you personally known for? Like when people write down your name, what are the descriptors they write beside it? How about during the divisiveness of the last year of COVID? What are you known for? You know, when you're building a bridge, I am told, because I've never built one, that the engineers who are in charge of bridge building, they make sure that they use materials that will endure the most severe conditions that may never come, but it's got to be able to endure that. Every beam, every bolt must be tested and proven to be to these true, exact specifications. But the genuine strength, like what that bridge really is, of those materials in that bridge will not be revealed when the conditions are ideal, but they're going to be revealed when the conditions are most difficult, when it is pushed to the ultimate limits. You'll know whether it's the real deal or not. And that's when you and I will find out if we're really overcomers. So when I ask that question of myself and of all of you, are you an overcomer? It remains to be seen. It remains to be seen. I sure pray and hope I am. I hope I hang in there at the end, if I'm around at the end. I'm also praying, Jesus, take me home so we don't have to get to that spot. Verse 2 continues, And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles. Oh, we've got this today. I'm just going to tell you, it is all over the place. Who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and you're bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. You know, the term apostle here in this context refers to representatives or messengers that actually are coming into Ephesus from other churches, from other places. It was very common back then. Um, And they tested these traveling messengers and found that some of the messages of the messenger was false. And they used God's Word. That's the only thing you got to go on. And we don't experience a lot of traveling messengers today. It's It's just, it's not really a thing anymore much because you can travel to your own preferred device and watch as many messages as you want on YouTube or on Facebook or on whatever app you've got. But the same kind of biblical discernment is critical. It's critical in having Jesus' approval, not the approval of anybody else in this room. At the end of the day, we stand before God. And having his approval of what we stand for is all that matters. And even on a practical level, um, bad theology hurts people. I've heard that God won't let me suffer if I'm faithful. I've heard that. That all sickness, when you do suffer, is the result of you being unfaithful. Bad theology. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Ask Jesus into your heart 
get your ticket for the train ride to heaven, and then live like you want. Bad theology. Do you know that people won't really go to hell for their sin? Love wins in the end. God's not going to let anybody go to hell. Bad theology. Yeah. These are the lies that you and I are being exposed to about how God works in this world. And they hurt people. They hurt. So Jesus commends them for their endurance in the face of hardships. And then he adds, I love this, by the way, you realize that these hard, difficult times are because of me, right? Right? It's not because of you. It's because of me, Jesus says. You live for me, these things are probably going to happen. Now, that kind of news, I'm thinking, will reduce the lineups to join Jesus. I'm just guessing here that that's how the church gets filtered, filtered out. This is God's sieve that we all go through. And maybe that was part of the point that in another sermon message we went through a series last year, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where the, the point that Jesus was making when he described the mob of people who are on the wide path and how there are so few believers on the narrow path, right? Same idea. But in spite of this exhausting work, these believers in Ephesus had not given up. Verse 4, but... Uh, when Jesus is talking to you, you don't want to hear this, right? But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Can you and I retain biblical love in the pursuit of biblical truth? Is that even possible? Years of battling for, for a pure faith against vicious opponents apparently had caused this church and their hearts to grow cold. The indictment is against the condition of their heart. Their love for both God and people has diminished somehow. As with many things in life, your greatest strength, my greatest strength, when it's taken to its, its limit, when it goes too far, can easily become our greatest weakness. We all know that, don't we? And Jesus is pointing this out. And we need to point that finger at ourselves and do an examination. Jesus condemns this kind of strong pursuit of truth when it abandons a strong passion of love, a strong presence, biblical presence of love. You see, there's a proper way to contend for the truth. We looked at this last year when we went through the, the letter of, of Jude. There's a proper way to contend for the truth without forfeiting love. When you and I lack love for people, and by the way, is that easy to do? Oh, come on. Yes. Say, just say yes. Humor me. Yes, Pete, it is so easy to do easy, easy to do. It's a sure indicator of a deeper spiritual problem, a deeper condition. In God's kingdom, truth and love are woven together. They're not separate. When you and I are in a condition of truth without love, our actions become little more than a cold demonstration of power, and we lord it over people, God's Word. 
When you are in a condition of love without truth, you fool yourself into thinking you're demonstrating a genuine godly love, but you're really not. And both of these conditions are relational disasters. This connecting of truth and love runs all throughout Scripture. God in the Old Testament, God the Father in the Old Testament is portrayed as holy, righteous, truthful, as well as being loving, gracious, and compassionate. Jesus in the New Testament perfectly embodies this convergence of love and truth, and it's in John 1.14, which is one of the greatest passages on this. The Word, speaking of Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory. He's God. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, but what's He full of? Grace and truth. This, this challenge to both of these realities in our lives and in this church called Grace Chapel of love and truth will be so terribly difficult to do in certain situations. This is going to be hard work. It's going to be frustrating. We're going to pray a lot. We're going to count on each other a lot. But it's crucial. If we're going to reflect God to a world that desperately needs to see God, and not all this other stuff that people are talking about. Neglect one and you'll do damage to the other, and Jesus will have something to say to you and me. Maybe He is right now. I hope so. Verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. He's saying, remember. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, (laughs) you don't want this. If not, I will come to you. We're saying, yes, come Jesus, come Jesus. Okay, think about this. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I'll take you out. Jesus gives his solution to the current problem that we see all the time and we experience all the time. A problem that he says is remedied with Remember, repent, and return. Three, three words, and they all begin with R. Oh, man, you can remember this. We can do this. And the sequence is really important. It really is. I, I love how Jesus lays this out. And as usual, repentance is right there in the middle. It seems like uh, when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can't get away from that word, repent, can you? Don't make excuses because we're good at that. Don't try and justify. Don't use the hardness of sin in somebody else's life as your defense. Repent. And let's be honest, it's likely going to happen. It maybe already happened this morning. It's a constant danger that comes with the strain of just everyday normal living. It's, it's hard to keep on every day. It's why people go on vacations. <laughs> I just got to get away. I just got to let, I got to turn my phone off and just put it on and not even look at it for 10 minutes. Just got to do that. We're prone to forget. <sighs> and, and we're prone to forget and just live in the present moment. And that's pretty popular. Just live in the moment. So Jesus challenges us to remember 
challenges them to remember their earlier behavior. Jesus asked them to return to the first works that were reminiscent of that earlier behavior. Remembering can serve as a helpful entry point into authentic repentance. We need to do this so much more often. I remember what God did for me every time we all participate in communion. Do you? It's a point, an entry point of remembrance. In Joshua chapter 4, one example from the Old Testament is the story of Israel crossing the Jordan River, not the Red Sea, but the other, and God parted that too. And then the people were commanded to set up 12 memorial stones that would be there for them to tell their children and their children's children so they wouldn't forget the Lord's miraculous work. Remember, a spouse reminds the other of their early dating years. You ever had this happen to you? We, we should do this more often. Of the thrill of newfound love that, 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 that we both discovered for the first time. Do you remember those days? A wise, honest spouse will respond with, you're right. <laughs> I do remember, and I'm sorry. I've taken you, God's gift to me, for granted lately. Sandy has to say that to me all the time. It's just like this. No, no. We need these types of memories. We need them in our lives, memorial stones to reflect on God's goodness to me, and it, it just snaps me back to what really matters. Christmas, Easter, communion, baptisms, these are just a few of the memorial stones. Unfortunately, you come to the word repent after remember. And I say unfortunately because it's a well-worn religious word. <laughs> we throw it around all the time, and I think it's lost its oomph. So Jesus uses our memory banks as a way to facilitate real repentance. Uh, and he shows us that there's this close examination that you and I need to do after we say we repent of the resulting behavior that occurs after we repent, and that will be the gauge as to whether it was the real deal or not. Remember when you were first drawn to God, those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior? For some of you, that's really recent. Awesome. For some of you, it's been decades. Do you remember, though, when you were first drawn to God and how He did that? What a, what a revelation it was. It was like, whoa, I, I didn't know this. I heard about it, maybe even raised in the, in the church, but boy, you, you were so acutely aware of your sin. That's the first thing that happens. In comparison to God's perfect, loving righteousness, you, were just, you, just, you had that sharp contrast. And, and you were dropped to your knees because of it, in humble adoration and repentance. And his salvation plan through Jesus' death sacrifice on the cross, personally appropriated by you, became a personal thing. God's love washed over you, and 
you were redeemed and adopted and all the other theological words just poured out over you and you've been learning them ever since. Do you remember how God's Spirit um, once worked in your heart during those early years, producing this genuine love for people who you used to hate or, or people you didn't give a second thought about and couldn't care less about? And how a, a prayer list began to develop in your mind for other people. And you remembered to pray for them <laughs> yeah. daily. And, and you, would, you would stop doing your own stuff for the sake of helping someone else do their stuff, no matter what. Remembering can lead us to a change of attitude and behavior now. That's called repentance. That's what repentance is. True repentance is connected to doing the works that they did at first. Acts of love, Jesus says they were. And they've forgotten those acts of love. It's got to accompany the true passion they have for the truth. If you choose to stay like you are, stuck in a moment and you can't get out of it, God's discipline will cause the immediate danger for the entire church. This is, this is what's so real in all seven of these churches. It's not a personal thing when you sin. It affects the entire body. The ripple effects. And the church loses its identity as God's church. And you thought you weren't important. And get the irony that Jesus points out here. It's not because they'd become lax in their pursuit of truth. No, no, no. But because they had forfeited their love in the process. Without love, the congregation ceases to be a church. Without godly love, it becomes something else. And Jesus disciplines that. Verse 6. Yet this you have. I love this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I just love how Jesus quickly, after this boom, right? It's like a kick in the gut that we all need. And then he's like, back to reaffirmation. It's wonderful. Okay, you guys, you got some repenting to do, and it's really, really serious. There's a lot at stake here. But we're on the same page here. The Nicolaitans... Uh, and by the way, in that study guide Ben mentioned that you can get online and that we're doing in our small groups together, um, there's all kinds of help to get you deeper into this. We're not going to spend a lot of time right now on it, but the Nicolaitans are thought to have been a group of false teachers who had infiltrated the church and were swaying people. Um, they were being tested, but still people uh, were, were, were exposing them and saying, no, these guys are, are wrong. These guys are false. And they're going to be closely connected to the cults of Balaam and Jezebel that we're going to see in, in a couple of the other churches in Asia Minor. Cults and false teaching in the church, around the church, they often try to redefine our faith. Have you noticed that? They've got pieces of the truth, but they redefine it. And usually um, it suits the particular interests of the leader of the cult. The one guy, who's, the guy or lady who, who's preaching, uh, it's usually something that they like to do. 
And they encourage their congregations, their cult followers to, to fit in with and perhaps even profit from the surrounding culture with its idolatry and its immorality and its deceit and its thirst for wealth, um, its false worship. The lines of people going into these places would be typically longer. And Jesus states that he hates the practices of false teachers. You see, there is a place to love and to hate. Verse 7, the last verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Do you remember the question I asked at the very beginning? What was it? Are you an overcomer? Maybe more correctly, it should have been, does Jesus see you as an overcomer? If you answer yes, you'll be allowed to eat from the tree of life. A tree that was created for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning and then withheld from all of mankind because of sin. It's in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Let me read from uh, 324. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You don't get to eat it anymore. It was a real thing. It's not a fairy tale. It was a real tree. And in the final, newly created paradise of God that we read about at the end of Revelation, we're going to be allowed to eat again from the tree of life, a tree symbolic of eternal life. It's in Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the, healing of, were for the healing of the nations. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. I can't wait. You know, it's, it's sad, but Ephesus is remembered in church history as what? the church that lost its first love. That's what it's remembered for. Not as the group who guarded the truth to the death. Their love. Note to self. We've seen Jesus in these verses. Just seven verses. And he's not at all the painted portrait that you and I often see of the blonde-haired, gentle-eyed, Scandinavian shepherd. <laughs> Go back and read chapter 1. Yeah, be amazed. That's my Jesus. I'm reminded of how C.S. Lewis described the initial description of, his, of Jesus being in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Good book. The children first hear about this lion named Aslan, mysterious, even frightening Christ figure who's rumored to be on the prowl. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? 
I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave or they're more than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Rise with me, and let's pray to the king, and then let's worship the king with our voices. Heavenly Father, we've been reminded, we've been struck in our hearts with the remembrance of what your Son and our Savior Jesus accomplished on the cross for our sin debt, gave us eternal life, gave us a life now to live in purity and hope and love and truth. Lord, we sing to you now from hearts that are truly amazed and thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.